This is Laree Daniel Favors, and welcome to The Hub. Elizabeth Hinton is a phenom and you should know about her. She is a professor of history and law uh, and African-American studies at Yale. She is the author of America on Fire, the untold history of police violence and black rebellion since the 1960s. And she wrote this fantastic article. Uh, There was an article that was, I guess, excerpted uh, out of her book. It was absolutely riveting. We're going to be tweeting out the link to that. And the reality is this conversation, though it is going to center on a bit of the past, is vitally important for the future. Professor Hinton, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thrilled to be here. Absolutely. Absolutely. There, I have a ton of questions for you. I'm going to dive right in because this is a conversation that is always close to mind. And, and in your article, you compared the, the protests from last summer to a period of the civil rights movement, the mid-60s to the early 70s. And you wrote in this article, the 1960s produced an image of riots as essentially black. Yet, historically speaking, most instances of collective violence have been perpetrated by white vigilantes hostile to integration. For those of us who don't remember or who perhaps weren't around when the 60s were happening, can you describe for us what that period of turmoil and protest looked like when compared to what we saw last summer? Right. So between 1964 and 1972, There were more than 2,000 incidents of collective political violence, what many policymakers and commentators labeled as riots, but what many of the people who participated in that violence um, and what I call rebellions. And most of these incidents emerged in response to some form of police brutality, just like what what we've seen in recent years, but all of them were rooted in the same fundamental grievances shared by the mainstream civil rights movement that is calling for a protection against white supremacist violence and ends of police brutality, decent jobs, a complete overhaul of public housing and expanded educational opportunities for low income kids of color. Mm. So what they called riots <laughs> and, and what we were experiencing then uh I see some of the similarities between what was happening most recently, but you also talk about the fact that the logic that drives American policing, and I guess the response to that, that period of the civil rights movement, uh, that logic you said where you're searching for criminals in low income communities and protecting property in white areas. Isn't that the same type of policing model that was framed by the the way policing began in this country as, as yeah. Yeah. Can you talk to us a bit about that? And and can you answer the question of, is this something that could actually be reformed considering the history that it's, it's grounded in? Yeah. So of course, you know, the, the policing that we see today has its origins in both the way that indigenous communities were policed and of course, uh, enslaved Africans were policed and slave patrols during the antebellum era basically empowered any white person uh, to gave white people legal authority over black people and were about the slave the slave patrols were about instilling social control on plantation communities. So basically, slave patrols were responsible for breaking up 
the gatherings of slaves uh, and ransacking slave dwellings, looking for quote unquote contraband like books, because of course Mm. enslaved Africans were not allowed to read by law and guns. And of course we see the same kind of duties and functions hearkening over policing today. That is like maintaining social control in communities of color, surveilling communities, raiding people's houses. These are the fundamental logics of American Mm. policing that have been, that have shaped how public safety works in segregated communities of color for hundreds of years. And Hmm. there's no way, I think one of the big lessons from my research and one of the things that we've seen over the last decade or so is that we have to move beyond police reform. If we really, really want to change these dynamics, police reform is not going to be enough. The Mm. pattern of practice investigations that are now being launched in Minneapolis and and Louisville in response to the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, um, they might might lead to some slight reforms in the police department, but they're not actually going to stop more killings in the future. They're not going to fundamentally prevent these dynamics from continuing. And so... The, the purpose is that we need to now go back to what, what, what black people were calling for during the civil rights era. We need a different set of investment in our communities outside of the police. We need investment into education and jobs and health care and housing, not police, surveillance and prisons, which has been the primary investment since the civil rights movement. You know, this is interesting to me because we are seeing this debate sort of play out in in local elections all across the country. I'm thinking right now the New York City mayoral race, uh, where a lot of the candidates Mm -hmm. are sort of continuing this conversation about, you know, well, we're going to reform and defund doesn't work and we need to, you know, build up the shot spotter plans and the cop, all of these plants while investing in community. There's literally, uh, to my knowledge, one candidate, uh, that's Diane Morales, who has actually said, yeah, no, what we need to do is defund police and take, because that's six billion dollar New York City Police Department budget doesn't need to be six billion dollars. We could half that budget and invest that three billion into these types of programs. It sounds to me like what you're saying is this is not a new demand. This is something that black communities have been saying for decades. It only got, uh, I guess, politicized more recently when it was framed under defund the police. Am I wrong in my understanding of that? No, that's no, that's completely that's completely right. It's calling for essentially a different set of investments. We know that this that the decision to fund prisons and police programs over education and jobs since the civil rights movement has not effectively fostered greater public safety in our most vulnerable communities. Gun violence remains a problem. Mass incarceration has not worked. And so now it's time for us to to bring about a different set of investments and new approaches that we know are more cost effective. It's much Mm. more cheap to educate somebody than it is to imprison them. And some of the best programs right now that are fostering public safety in our communities are, are local organizations. They're grassroots groups. They know, they know what the problems are. We don't always need a uniformed officer with a gun to respond to social issues, which has been the order of the day since social welfare programs and all of these basic necessities got disinvested from in the 70s and 80s. We Now is the moment. I mean, we're at this crossroads we were just talking about. Our democracy is at a crossroads. The way that we have governed is at a crossroads. And we have to try a new approach now. You know, Professor, I got to be honest with you. And, and please push back on this if I'm 
in error here, but it would almost seem that with all of this research, with all of this knowledge, with brilliant scholars like yourself, all reaching a similar conclusion, which is to say that you cannot create community safety under a slave patrolling police practice, it's almost as if legislators are creating policies that promote and protect slave policing practices in spite of all of the information and all signs pointing to that not working. I, I Am I wrong in suspecting there's something nefarious happening here? I mean, I, I tend well, to see, you know, go ahead, go ahead. I think that, you know, I mean, that's a very astute observation. I think that in- intentionality, of course, varies across the spectrum. But, I mean, we know that police, and this, again, goes back to our history and goes back to the way that the Black codes and convict policing systems emerged after the Civil War. I mean, we know that policing and prisons have been long used throughout United U.S. history to maintain racial hierarchies and maintain the exploitation and oppression of people of color and black people in particular. Mm. So if, if we're really serious about fostering a more egalitarian society, the way to do it is not to manage the problems of poverty and racial inequality with police. And I think policymakers know that it's just, you know, whether or not they're willing to actually disrupt the mm. racial hierarchies and norms that have defined this country from its founding. So we're either perpetuating the racial caste system or not. But it sounds as though uh, there is some uh, universal, I would say, or, or large appreciation for continuing business as usual. You, you mentioned in your article the Safe Streets Act. Can you talk to us a bit about that law, that, that legislation, and how it altered policing? Right. So that's, I mean, you know, again, it's, there's this tendency in U.S. history that every time rights ex- extend and the bounds of citizenship expand, that, you know, the national government comes back or governments come back with new laws, new criminal laws that target black people and, and new forms of incarceration. And the Safe Streets Act, you know, uh, was enacted at the end of the Johnson administration and basically started this unprecedented investment on the part of the federal government in local police forces. So this is when we begin to see the transfers of military weapons from Vietnam to mm. local police departments and not just big city police departments, but also rural and mid-sized departments. So this is the origins of bulletproof vests and helicopters and armored vehicles and riot control helmets. All the things that are kind of ubiquitous in urban policing today begin in this post-civil rights movement in response wow. to rebellion. Um, and it also forces state to develop an infrastructure to make criminal justice a priority and introduces hundreds of millions or billions of dollars today in federal funding for crime control. So what's interesting is that, you know, there's a war on poverty that was going on at this time, but that never got the kind of investment on the part of federal Mm. policymakers or permanent infrastructure that the war on crime got. And we're still dealing with the consequences of that today. Mm. You know, when you mentioned the transfer of military weapons after Vietnam into police departments, I'm reminded of 100 years ago and a couple of days, actually, uh, when military weapons that were used in the World War were also then turned on black people. I'm, of course, referencing Greenwood, uh, Black Wall Street, where incendiary objects were literally dropped from private planes and from military planes. And there were military style weapons that had been used in the war that were then turned on our 
ancestors who had to flee for their lives. It, it seems to me, again, I, I hate to be uh, overly simplistic, but I am reminded of my law professor, Brian Stevenson, who said always slavery mm. never ended. It simply evolved. And I, I was hoping this mm. conversation was going to lead me in another direction, but now nah, you're just confirming yeah. it. <laughs> you are just confirming uh, what is happening. I got to, I have to ask you this. Are you, are you hopeful in any way that this is going to have some sort of solution that does not look exactly like what the past has looked like? I think we have to be hopeful. I mean, you know, what you were saying in the last segment, democracy is really at a crossroads. And if we don't do something now, if we don't act now, we will be going back to 1850. But I, mm. I, I have to be hopeful. I'm inspired by the protests last summer. I think, I think the majority of, uh, of people in this country don't agree with the direction of our governance, want to preserve and uphold our democracy. And we know historically, I mean, it is up to us. Policymakers, these changes don't come out of the goodness of people's hearts. I mean, our ancestors in the freedom movement, they spent decades organizing, protesting, filing lawsuits, petitions. We have to keep the pressure on. We can't, we cannot just sit by and, and, and watch our rights get taken away, watch more of our people get killed by the state, watch, watch our democracy completely unravel. And I'm confident that we will keep the pressure on because that's what we do. That's what mm. we've done historically, and that's what we'll continue to do. You know, we often on this show at least talk about these issues from a perspective that centers the black community. Um, it's, it's urban view. That's kind of what we do. Not that everyone who listens is black, but that's sort of, you know, the vantage point that we, we tend to look at things in some ways, I should say. I should put some asterisks around that, but, but you get what I'm saying. Where are the allies in this conversation? The non-black people, the those white Americans, those those non-black Americans who are seeing what's happening recognize perhaps that it's wrong, who are perhaps wrestling with the demons in their own familial genealogy once they discover, oh, not only were we not abolitionists, we own lots of people. Like, where, what is the right. role for white people in preserving or creating, or should I say expanding the type of policing they get in their communities into our communities? Because you know, their communities are not exactly. policed at all the same. What is the role for white people in this struggle? Right. And that's one of the reasons why I am hopeful, because I think we began to see that emerge last summer since, I mean, most of the protests happen in majority white communities and some in all white communities. And I think that we're beginning to see a coalition of LGBTQ plus activists and climate change activists and racial justice activists, social justice activists, all coming together and realizing that, you know, the struggle for our liberation is tied to the that is black people's liberation is tied to the liberation of all of us and i think we really i mean that is one of the things that you know the civil rights protests were were also a multiracial coalition but i think there's something new emerging especially with generation z and mm. i you know i i think more people are beginning to recognize just how deep systemic racism and injustice runs in this country and they don't want to 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 live in a live in a society that excludes and oppresses and exploits mm. uh people groups of people systematically any longer and that's exactly why you know we're seeing this clampdown on the part of republicans and conservatives in an attempt to basically undermine democracy because they know that that their that their policies and their viewpoints are a losing battle. Mm. 
America on Fire, the untold history of police violence and black rebellion since the 1960s. This is a must have in any library. Where can people follow you and where can they get their hands on this book? I'm on Twitter at at E-L-I-Z-A-B Hinton, H-I-N-T-O-N. And the book is available on Amazon, but please purchase from your local independent bookseller. It's available Mm -hmm. wherever books are sold. Professor Hinton, we're going to have to have you back. This conversation is not going anywhere at all. And I do. That, yes, this this research must make it to the people and the people must know uh, what is inside your head, because I think it's necessary for us to build something different. And that is definitely vitally necessary. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me.